You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Election College, episode 176, the second bank of the United States. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Hey, Ben, we both like money. It's a good thing. And we realized that it takes money to run a country. And we talked about that first chartered bank that was authorized by Congress to exist in the last episode, the first bank of the United States. We don't want to ignore the fact that there was another bank that was a private bank called the Bank of North America. And that didn't really affect the economy and how presidents were elected. So that's the reason we're not going to go too in-depth about that. But yeah, the second bank of the United States. If you remember from our last episode, in 1811... George Clinton, the vice president, cast the tie-breaking vote to not renew the charter of the First Bank of the United States. So what happened? Well, just a few years later, in 1816, a new corporation was established. And so this bank, not unlike the First Bank, started out as a private corporation that, well, helped support the U.S. government and was accountable to the government. So after the War of 1812, the government's like, man, we don't really know what's going on with our money. There's all this currency floating around still. We, we still haven't been able to get back on our feet where we were before. Um, you know, just becoming a new country, we were doing okay until, you know, the War of 1812 happened, then that kind of screwed everything up. And there's also all these businesses that businesses and investors and everything that are like, we've got government bonds and we'd like to make sure you know what you're doing so we don't lose our shirt. That'd be great. And so there's a bunch of people who are pressing forward to, hey, we need a new bank. Uh, you know, this is the, the era of good feelings uh, in a sense. Uh, the there's all sorts of push for national programs and tariffs and improvements. And, of course, 
a bank. And so John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay are big proponents for this. They're really pushing for it. And uh, in 1816, Madison, surprise, surprise, signs a charter in the law on April 10th. Now, Calhoun and Clay, as I mentioned a minute ago, are kind of like, you know, we should make make it so that we have some money for internal improvements. And who, know, who knows what that means? Uh, actually, we do know what that means, but we won't get into it right now. We want to put aside some money for internal improvements. How about a million and a half dollars? Not a big deal. Uh, we'll just earmark that. And Madison says no, because it's not really our place to do that. That's not what this bank was established for. I am a constructionist, and therefore, if it's not in the rules, it doesn't exist. Yeah. So if you want to talk about some people who were very much against this, even further than Madison, even though Madison was a little soft on this, right? Because he signed it into law. But there were members of the assembly in Virginia who were very much against this because, well, they had all the money that they needed, right? And they were proud of their state. And why would you need some sort of bank that's over the entire country? So in the 18-teens, what you need to know is that things are changing dramatically on the world scene. You have this new nationalism that has gripped the United States because of the War of 1812. We've talked about that before, you know, with the whole Battle of New Orleans and, you know, the Star-Spangled Banner and, and things like that coming out of that war. Why have we not, and I don't say we, we've done a couple of podcasts about the War of 1812, but why do we as a nation not recognize that as a big deal? Yeah. It was a big deal. But there was this new nationalism that was occurring here in Europe, they were just getting out of this era where Napoleon was just destroying everything and causing all kinds of havoc uh, there. There was democracy that was happening, and there was uh, a new class of people who were making money, and there was credit being established. So the world is in very much a state of flux at this point. And you have this desire to establish this national bank, as Ben said, and it was done with some restrictions. There were some constitutional issues that needed to be dealt with, but uh, William Jones, he takes the helm of the Bank of the United States. And what they do is they try to have a uniform currency. They try to have a, a, a single bank that's being used. And what ends up happening is some of the branches that were in the West and in the South, they were like, hey, let's print some money. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's do our thing. And let's just kind of not worry so much about if this money is backed up or not. So what ends up happening in 1819 is the panic. And what happens is the central bank is very tight on its money. They're thinking we need to have all of this backed up. And the 
policies of this bank were allegedly the cause of mass unemployment. Um, property values were plummeting, and there was all kinds of scandal going on because it was alleged that people in, especially the Baltimore office, they had engaged in fraud and larceny. So, needless to say, William Jones cannot continue being the president. So he resigns in January of 19... So he resigns in January of 1819, and Langdon Chavez comes into office, or position, or whatever the case is. And he continues being tight on credit and doesn't want inflation to continue and wants to stabilize the bank and the economy. It's already started to correct, but it continues uh, to do so. And they're kind of admitting at this point, like, yeah, we screwed up. We did some stuff that was not smart. Uh, The American public is like, I don't know about this whole paper money thing. Like, can we just go back to, you know, gold and biting into gold coins, like in the movies, like, that'd be great, right? But <laughs> I just see everybody biting down on gold. Yeah, yeah. So a little while later, an- another president comes in. His name is Nicholas Biddle, and he's appointed in 1823. And so finally, the Bank of the United States kind of becomes a, a huge, powerful institution. And it really starts to set out that. America is going to have a very steady system of credit, a very steady system of currency, and they start just expanding credit from that point. Uh, it's you know it's restrained, but they understand that the American economy needs some juice, like it needs to get going. And Albert Gallatin, who is the uh, former Secretary of the Treasury, he you know, was picked by Jefferson and Madison, who hated the idea of these national banks. He says, yeah, they're fulfilling their charter expectations. Go bank, go second bank in the United States. First one, I don't care about. The second one was good. <laughs> oh, so you remember 1829, there's a party in the White House because Andy Jack, he gets elected. And things seem to be going pretty well. Uh, the National Bank, it's on solid footing. Um, they have the support of a decision back in 1819, um, McAuliffe versus Maryland, which stated that, yeah, this is totally constitutional to have this National Bank. And Daniel Webster had um, argued that successfully, uh, that the U.S. Treasury... Um, it was doing doing the deal and doing it the way it should be, and that American currency was healthy and it was stable. And the public thought it was great, but who didn't think this was great? Andy Jack. Yes, Andrew Jackson. So you have Jackson, who's sitting there at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He's like, no, this is, this is not cool. This is not even constitutional for us to have this national bank. And Congress, being effective at the time, they decide that they're going to have some committees get together and they're going to investigate 
to see whether or not the bank is constitutional and if it's doing its job to form a uniform currency. And Jackson is like, no, it's not. Nothing you can say is going to deter me. The bank is corrupt and it's dangerous to American liberties. So there are attempts by bank officials to ask Andy Jack to have a change of heart. And he doesn't. And this ticks (laughs) off a lot of people. It ticks off Henry Clay. And what ends up happening is there is a bank war. And by the time 1832 rolls around, when Andy Jack is up for re-election, this becomes the big, big deal in 1832. Yeah, and so... Jackson's whole platform is anti-bank. He vetoes the recharter bill. uh, The the veto is sustained, and he easily gets reelected. He kind of destroys the bank brick by brick, I guess you could say. Maybe dollar by dollar (laughs) uh, would be a better way to say it, because he actually would remove deposits, federal deposits, from the bank. And... At another point in 1833, he said, you know what, all our revenue, we're actually going to divert that into some different private banks. No no big deal. Just some executive orders going on. And uh, the the Second Bank of the United States, you're no longer going to have regulation control or regulatory control over the country. Sorry. And Biddle, who is the president of the bank, is desperate. He's really hoping to rescue the bank. So because there's such a backlash uh, against the things that Biddle is trying to do, the panic kind of ends, which, hey, you got something done. Great. Good job. And they decide, yeah, it's probably just not worth it (laughs) to recharter the banks at this point. So in 1836, the bank becomes a private corporation and it's in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But there's a shortage of currency which causes another panic, the Panic of 1837. And the bank's like, you know what? We're just done. 1839 comes along. They suspend payment. 1841 comes along. It gets liquidated. Done so. Yeah, it's crazy to think of how horrible conditions were because of the Panic of 1837. I mean, you had unemployment as high as 25%. All kinds of people were losing their jobs. People were losing all kinds of money. Um, Something that we don't really have much perspective on in this day. Sure, you know, some of our grandparents would have lived through the Great Depression and they would have uh, somewhat of an idea, but this was a huge deal. And for seven years, The country was just in disarray. It resulted in thousands of banks closing, and um, it's pretty amazing. It's amazing, Ben, that Andy Jack's hand-picked successor, Martin Van Buren, Uh gets elected in the middle of that. I can't imagine that the same party is in power at the time. We'll get into that because 
a little while ago, we were going through some of the biographies and we left off with Andy Jack. And it's about time that we pick up with our presidential biographies. So look for that soon. Martin Van Buren, he's he's getting out of the dugout right now. <laughs> kind of warming up, getting ready to, to go on deck. And then um, we'll talk more about the panic. So as far as the second bank of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone because of Andy Jack, but guess what's still here? The building, the building, <laughs> our favorite thing. So yeah, the building is still around. It is, uh, right there in independence, national historical park, just like the first bank in Philadelphia. And you can go there. It's free of charge. It's an art gallery. And, uh, you know, there's a, a bunch of stuff in there by prominent Americans from that time period of when the uh, country was founded all the way through when the second bank was put into place and went out, of course, as well. Uh, it's it and the first bank of the United States are both beautiful buildings. Uh, the second bank specifically, I remember seeing the second bank and thinking and literally thinking, is this the Supreme Court? <laughs> because I didn't know what I was talking about, and I didn't know where the Supreme Court was or anything. But I just remember it, it looked similar because of the, the architecture and, and the pillars. And obviously, I had no idea what I was talking about. But I remember being there for a, a trip once and saying, is this the Supreme Court? Um, it's not, folks. It's the Second Bank of the United States. You should go there sometime. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, one place that you definitely should go, and you can do it. Well, right this very moment is head over to our Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash election college or electioncollege.com slash Patreon, it's going to take you exactly to the same place. And over on Patreon, you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. That's like 11 cents an episode. We really appreciate it. We appreciate each and every one of you as listeners, but when you support us financially, it helps us offset some of the costs of hosting because hosting the podcast isn't free. And we want to interact with you as much as possible on our social media channels. Uh, go over and check out Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Election College. But before you do any of that, if you haven't already, make sure to leave us a great big whopping five-star review that means the world to us if you take the time it only takes you know 60 90 120 seconds depending on how much you want to write but it won't take much time out of your day it'll mean a lot to us and people who come after you they want to read reviews they want to see what the podcast is like they want to understand is this a good show or a bad show they wouldn't think it was a bad show if is this a good show great uh so <laughs> go ahead and leave us a review over at electioncollege.com slash iTunes. Yeah, thank you very much, and we will see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.